0: Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 to chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God.
1: Thanks, Chipta and Jackie. Yes, guys. If you want to join the membership class today and you missed last week, that's okay. Uh, I can catch you up on it if you want some time. Um, and also, um, um, if you can't join today but want to join next week for our, for our last session, sorry about that. Uh, we can do that as well. Um, so please come. And just so you know, it's not. If you join, it doesn't mean that you are it, that you are. Um, um, member, that you're committing to be a member. It just means that you want to get to know TCC more and what our church is all about. So please come and join if you want. We've ordered extra food. If you haven't signed up, there'll be free food waiting for you. Um, But if too many of you sign up, then I'm very sorry. we will have to find food on your own. But there should be enough. There should be enough for you. Okay, So just come on by and uh, um, uh, enjoy. We would love to have your company. Okay, so today we're going to continue in our series through the book of Jonah. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you probably have realized that we are doing a different book, uh, a longer series, uh, which is through the book of John. Because the book of John is such a long book, we're going to take a break every now and then by going to one of the books in the Old Testament, in the 12 minor prophets, okay? The minor prophets are the shorter prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Um, so right now... We're in the middle of one of those breaks from the bigger series of John, and we chose to do the book of Jonah, which is one of the 12 minor prophets. And again, if you're here last week, I hope you remember that the, they're called minor prophets not because they're unimportant, but because they're shorter in length in comparison to the major prophets, the four major prophets of the Old Testament. Okay? So last week, we saw the purpose of the whole book. We saw the purpose of the whole book of Jonah and how we must study this passage. Still under the same banner of that main purpose of the book. What is the main purpose of this book? Well, the main purpose of the book, as we've seen, is a question posed by God at the very end of the book of Jonah. Okay, chapter 4, verse 10. This book is interesting in many ways, but one of the ways in which it's unique is that it ends with a question. And God doesn't leave it answered. (laughs) He just ends the book with a question mark. And that is. The context, that is the question he's asking, he asked Jonah and is asking us now today. So chapter 4, uh, verse 10, pretty much God is saying, should I not have pity on Nineveh? Nineveh, as we talked last week, are evil, sinful people. Okay, They're evil and sinful people who also pose a threat to Jonah, personally, because Nineveh is a city in Assyria. Assyria were the arch enemies of Israel the country that Jonah's in. So the question God is asking Jonah and is asking us today through his word is this. Should God, do you think God, should have pity on sinful people in the world who pose a threat to us? How should God respond to that? What should he do? That's the question he leaves us with at the end of this book. How do you think CCC, how do you think God should deal with the Ninevehs in our life? Those who has or is currently posing a threat to you? How should God deal with those who has or is currently hurting you? Should he have pity on them? Should we have pity on them? Or should we adopt the attitude that Jonah had in chapter 1, who wanted Nineveh to get what they deserved? He literally didn't mind if Nineveh burnt in hell. He he could have cared less, which is why he disobeyed God's call to preach to them in chapter 1 and ran away uh, to the complete opposite direction. Should we have pity on Nineveh, or should we act like Jonah? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Okay, God's not leaving the answer up to us. (laughs) He's posing a question that he himself answers throughout this book. As we see chapter 1 that we studied last week, Jonah should have pity on Nineveh. Jonah should not desire for them to perish. Jonah should stop being self-righteous and desire for other sinful people in the world, even his own enemies, to be saved. Why? Because Jonah himself is a sinner who God has pity on every day. We see this in chapter 1 where God told Jonah to let go of his simmering anger towards the Ninevites and go preach to them, go give them the good news, and go... Go tell them of repentance so that God may not be angry at them. He didn't want to do that because he thought that Nineveh deserved to burn in hell. Nineveh deserved to die. So what he did was he left to Joppa, which he took a boat, and then he went to Tarshish, which is west of where he was, and Nineveh was northeast of where he was, going the opposite direction. Him saying, He's saying, I don't want to preach Nineveh. I think my enemies, I think sinful people in the world should die. That's what Jonah said in chapter 1. But now... After experiencing God's wrath of bringing the storm on the ship, remember he ran away from a ship and then God brought about a storm and Jonah was caught in the storm and he finally fell to the water or was thrown into the water by the sailors. This brings us to our current chapter, to our current scene, where God saves Jonah, disobedient sinful Jonah, from drowning. Here's the turning point of the story, where Jonah experiences the mercy of God at his lowest point where God made Jonah realize his own sinfulness and what he deserves for it. And how Jonah has no right to impose punishment on other sinful people in the world, for he himself is an object of God's wrath who's received mercy. Okay? He is a fellow sinner saved by grace, which brings us to our passage today. So there's three things I want to point out from our passage. One, Jonah's unbelievably ironic deliverance. Two, Jonah's unbelievably slow transformation, and three, our unbelievably great salvation. Jonah's unbelievably ironic deliverance, Jonah's unbelievably slow transformation, and our unbelievably great salvation. But let me pray before we enter into our sermon. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed to us your word and that you are a God uh, that works in history, that works in real time and space, that is intricately related to your creature's and are with us sovereign now. And Father, as we learn from your word and and see what you're trying to tell us, work in our hearts, for mere words alone from a preacher, no matter how well and crafted, cannot change hearts. We are all here dependent upon your spirit that you may change us and reveal to us the thrust of what you're trying to tell us from this passage today, that we may be lured back into a loving and growing relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to it. Point number one, Jonah's unbelievably ironic deliverance. When we look at the story, okay, we look at Jonah's deliverance, it's both almost unbelievable and ironic. Okay, first let's talk about how it's an almost unbelievable story. All right, let's just, let's just go ahead and start off with addressing the thing everybody's probably thinking about right now. Really? A giant fish swallowed Jonah in the water and saved him. And there's this big whale, I guess. And unfortunately, the book of Jonah has often been reduced to this one focus. So many people are distracted by just how unbelievable this one event is, that God would save Jonah from sinking in a storm by appointing a great big fish and swallowing him. Look at verse 117, right? That's how our passage starts. Jonah's drowning in the ocean because he received the wrath of God after running away from what God commanded him to do, to preach to Nineveh. Now, verse, chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. <laughs> now, many have, have taken this part of the story and say, oh, this must have been some kind of addition to the book of Jonah. It's too unbelievable. It's too miraculous, right? It seems like it's a fable added into the book, later on after the book was written and this actually didn't really happen but it was kind of like a moral story that people tell to make a point point. and actually if you guys know i'm sure you do the movie the disney movie pinocchio um, at the end of it if you remember there's a great fish big fish that swallowed pinocchio and his creator actually followed pinocchio's creator um and pinocchio came into the great fish and saved that's that's taking it from the book of jonah okay So this chapter, chapter two, seems like something that people think belong in a Disney movie, right? It's just so unreal. It's just so unbelievable. All right. So let's address this real quick. I don't think it's a fable. I think it's something that truly happened. But if you do claim that this is a fable, if you want to claim that this is an addition, or um, uh, if you doubt the truthfulness of the story and you doubt the authenticity of it, I want you to know that you're also indirectly doubting two other things. If you doubt that Jonah, this event with the whale, was not true, then you're also doubting two other things. One, you must also doubt the book as a whole as true. You can't just say chapter 2 is not true. If you say chapter 2 is not true, you're saying the rest of the book is not true. And two, you must also doubt the God of the Bible is true. If you have logical integrity in how you understand the Bible and you say this chapter is not true, you also must doubt the whole book, and you also must doubt that the God of the Bible is true. Let me, let me explain. First, if we doubt this part of the story as being true, then we must also doubt the rest of the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 17 again, the first verse in your pronounce. Once again, the word that the author uses here to describe the fish's actions is what? Appointed. God appointed a great fish. The word appointed is used three other times in the whole book to describe each instance and each time where God uses His sovereign power to command His creation and His creatures to do something. Chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. God appointed a plant. Chapter 4, verse 7. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Chapter 4. 4 verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God appointed the fish, God appointed a plant, God appointed a worm, God appointed scorching east wind and the sun. And in chapter 1, he appointed, he didn't say the word appointed, but he still controlled the sea and the storm. This is a huge theme of the book, that God has control and authority over all his creatures. And he can do whatever he pleases. He can appoint his creature to do whatever he wants according to his will. And if we doubt that chapter 2 and say that it's added in, God appointing the fish to swallow Jonah is too unbelievable, then you also have to doubt the rest of the book because there's so many other times where God appointed creation to do his work. You can't just say chapter 2 is untrue but say the rest of the book is true. If you say chapter 2 is untrue, you have to say the rest of the book is also untrue. Chapter 4 is untrue, and chapter 1 is untrue. Okay, If we have logical integrity in how we understand the Bible, We have to doubt the whole book if we doubt chapter 2. Second point, second sub-point. If we say that the story of the fish is too unbelievable and therefore cannot have happened, then we must also not only doubt the the whole book, but also we must doubt the existence of a God that can make such a thing happen. Right? If the God of the Bible is real, if the God that the Bible describes to be true truly does exist, the God who has created and has full control and authority over his creatures, um, if this God exists, then the event of the fish in chapter 2 of this book, along with the sea and the storm in chapter 1, and along with the plant and the worm and the wind and the sun in chapter 4, if the God of the Bible exists, then absolutely it's plausible. Why not? Because the God of the Bible is the God that not only has created creation, but is also intimately involved in his creation. Let's look at two verses real quick. Psalm chapter 30, 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And our call to worship earlier, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God has intricate authority over all his creatures. He can appoint whatever to do whatever he wants. So to doubt chapter 2 of Jonah, to say that this is untrue, this can't be true because it's too unbelievable. If we have logical integrity, we also have to doubt the rest of the book, and we also have to doubt that a God who has authority and is able to make such events occur must not exist. Plus, on top of that, Jesus himself affirms this event as something that actually happened. Let's go to the New Testament real quick. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38-40. to 40. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation. See Nineveh, evil people. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if we believe that the sovereign God of the Bible truly does exist, that alone must at least lead us to say this event is absolutely plausible. But on top of that, if we claim that this book is making, what this book is making as a whole, that this is a historical narrative with real people, real cities, Nineveh, real countries, Israel, Syria, real conflict and tension between them, that is historically accurate. If we, if we claim that, the God, that God exists, that can do such a thing, if we, if we claim that, of, that we agree with the word of God, what this book is saying, plus on top of that, we have Jesus' own claim that this event in the book of Jonah that we're studying today actually is authentic and real, thus the orthodox claim of the church, and we also affirm that this event being something almost unbelievable, yes, but truly did happen. All right, so we're going to move forward with that assumption. If you have questions with that later, please come to me. I'd love to talk about it. But what do you think is God trying to say here by such an almost unbelievable event? He's saying, God in His sovereignty is telling us that it takes nothing less than a crazy, almost unbelievable miracle to save men from their sin. It takes nothing than God miraculously doing something to save us from the consequences of our rebellion and sin. Jonah rebelled against God, right? Chapter 1. He disobeyed God to preach repentance to Nineveh as he was supposed to. He disobeyed the sovereign creator of the universe who all other creatures obeyed. The plant obeyed, the sun obeyed, the wind obeyed, the fish obeyed, the sea obeyed. But man, we disobey. We're the only creature that says no to God. This deserves capital punishment. You can't get out of this by a slap on the wrist. You can't Sunday school your way out of this one. (laughs) This is a huge offense that we have rebelled against God through our thoughts, through our actions, through our motivations. We have often said no to God. We have loved other things. Jonah, like you and I, every day turn our face away from God. Even our best acts are filled with impurity and sinful motives. God is saying, do you realize the consequence, humans, your actions has brought upon you? You're not in time (laughs) out. You can't, you can't go to detention and get out of this one. This is a, this is a big deal. You've offended and daily offend the sovereign creator of the universe. And it takes nothing less than a miracle to get you out of it. But also we said earlier, not only was this salvific redemption event of Jonah so miraculous to the point of it almost being unbelievable, but it's also ironic. It's an unbelievably ironic deliverance. Why? Because the way Jonah was delivered. If if all God wanted to do, if the only point God wanted to make was the miraculousness of our salvation, then he could have used many other things that are still miraculous, right? He could have used a giant bird. To come down and pick Jonah up and fly him to shore. He could have used the waves, like I don't know, bring a tsunami and just wash Jonah to shore. If the only point he's trying to make was how unbelievably miraculous our salvation needs to be, he could have used all of that. But no, he decided to use a big fish that swallowed Jonah and vomited him out. Why is that? Why is that? It's ironic because everywhere else in the Old Testament, the imagery of being swallowed and vomited out is always an imagery of judgment and punishment. Let's look at some verses. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 25 and 28. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. If you don't do it, it'll vomit you out. It's, It's a sign of judgment for breaking God's commands. Jeremiah 51, 34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. The imagery of being swallowed and vomited out is always an imagery of judgment. But yet, in Jonah's case, God uses a means of judgment to save him. What's he trying to say? Not only does it take a miraculous miracle to get you out of the trouble you're in, humans, for your rebellion, but you also don't deserve it. Not only does it take a miracle, God doesn't owe it to us. Look at verse 3. Look at what Jonah says. For you cast me into the deep. Who is you, God? This is God's doing. God threw Jonah into the sea, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. We don't deserve salvation. We don't, God doesn't owe it to us to miraculously save us. We deserve judgment. But yet a means of judgment became the very way in which Jonah was delivered. Your floods, it's God's flood. It's God's billows. This isn't karma. This isn't, Random forces of nature that negatively impact bad people because somehow bad things happen to bad people. No, 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 no. This The Bible doesn't teach karma. Our sin does not bring about the wrath of random forces of nature. Our sin brings about the wrath of a sovereign God that has control over all creation. God did not owe Jonah salvation. God does not owe us salvation. Jonah, like us, didn't do anything that would earn this. He, like us, are always in the midst of disobedience. He was sinning. Not only did he fail in his role of being God's prophet, he failed in being a human being who is supposed to obey God and follow his instruction. He, he failed as a creature. All the other creatures obeyed God. But what did Jonah do? He disobeyed God. It's miraculous and it's undeserved. What he deserved, what all rebellious sinful man deserve is to be swallowed up and vomited out in judgment. Yet Jonah was saved. All right. Let me ask you again. It's almost unbelievable, yes, and it's ironic of how it happened. But let's go back to the point of the story. What do you think God should do to sinful evil people in the world? Should he have pity on them? Should we have pity on them? Or should he just swallow them up and vomit them out in judgment? If we forget that we're fellow sinners, (laughs) saved by nothing short but undeserved grace and mercy, we'll probably demand justice from God. Oh, it's their fault they did that, so they deserve to burn in hell, or they deserve to die, or they deserve to be punished, right? But if we, like Jonah, are reminded of just how much grace has been given to you, it should make us have pity on them because you and I as well are objects of God's pity and God's mercy, which leads us to our second point. We see the transformation that Jonah experiences here in the belly of the fish from this unbelievably ironic deliverance. Point number two, Jonah's unbelievably ironic transformation. I'm sorry, Jonah's unbelievably slow transformation, which is our second point. All right, so first point Jonah deserved justice, uh, deserved God's wrath. He was swallowed up and vomited by a fish, which should have been an act of judgment. But God, through this act of judgment, saved Jonah from drowning. And Jonah here in the belly of the fish started to praise God. He started to worship. He started to fall into poetry and song. Why? Because he realized just how hopeless he was. He realized just how miraculous and how undeserving God's deliverance was for him. Well, we actually haven't really looked into just how hopeless Jonah was. Many of us, when we read this passage, probably think of Jonah kind of on the uh, ocean, like on the, floating around the ocean, struggling and, uh, you know, trying to swim and survive and not sink. But, but that's not the picture. His situation was actually much more hopeless than a man struggling to drown. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Okay, so yes, in verse 3, he's still afloat. He still sees the waves and the billows, right? That means he's still on top of the water, still on the surface of the raging water. But then verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. Here the waves are no longer passing him, but the water has closed over him. What is it saying? He's starting to sink, going deeper and deeper and lower. And then the deep surrounded him. He's sinking deeper and deeper. Finally, at the end of verse 5, what does it say? The weeds were wrapped about my head. Where are weeds found in the ocean? The very bottom of it. It was hopeless. There is no escape for Jonah. Then verse 6, the roots of the mountain were surrounding him. Where, where, where are the roots of the mountain found in an ocean? At the very very bottom. You can't get any lower than this. His, He wasn't Gasping for air in the surface, he was done for. There was no hope for him unless God miraculously acts. Verse 6 continues, I went down to the land. This is literally rock bottom. And then continues, whose bars closed up upon me forever. <laughs> How much hopeless can you be? You're in an ocean, you're, 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 you're done for. There is no scenario that Jonah could have mustered up There is no maneuvers of men outside of Jonah that could have saved him. No one could have saved him. He couldn't save himself. Only one thing is where he finds his hope in, that God miraculously acts. And this is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Nowhere in the Bible does it say sinful man can, based on their own effort, save themselves. Short from God's unbelievable mercy and grace, we can't escape the rightful justice and wrath that he has upon us based on our rebellion. We are done for. You cannot Sunday school yourself out of this one. You can't. I can't. This is why Jonah burst into such rich song and worship after he was saved by God, because he realized This great fish that God has appointed to save him is nothing short than a miraculous act of God's mercy and undeserved grace that he would have never been able to muster up on his own and no one else would have either. That made him fall into worship. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and undeserved grace. But Jonah's transformation, it was also ironic. It was slow. This is is what I mean. His prayers sound very poetic. Right? If you read read the passage again, it's very pretty. It sounds very repentant. It sounds very self-aware. Right? It's filled with vows and, and confessions of sin. But if you read the context of the whole book, it's very ironic. Why? Because in chapter four, you see Jonah going back and sinning and struggling in the same exact way he struggled with in chapter one. Right? Chapter 1, he didn't want to see Nineveh saved. So he disobeyed God. No, I'm not going to let them escape your wrath. I'm not going to preach to them. They deserve to burn in hell. He simmered in his anger. He left. This whole thing happened. He went there. He finally preached to Nineveh because this great fish brought him there. And he preached to Nineveh. In chapter 4, God truly did repent his anger from Nineveh. And he got all upset. He started throwing a hissy fit. He started complaining. He's like, I, I, you, I knew you were going to do this. See, now they're saved. Now they're not going to burn in hell I shouldn't have preached to them. God, they deserve worse. They don't deserve to be saved. He was struggling the same exact way he struggled in chapter 1, but verse chapter 2 sounded very, very poetic. His prayer sounded really, really spiritual and really, really righteous. Jonah is saying all the right things in chapter 2, but it's pretty much what we do here in worship, isn't it? Jonah chapter 1, he proclaims the reason of why God is worthy of worship, so to speak. This is a call to worship, what we do every day before we enter into worship. I called out the Lord out of my distress and, um, and me of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. It's a call to worship. Verses three to seven, he proclaims a confession of sin and acknowledges the helpless state he's in because of his rebellion. I've been swallowed by the sea and deserving of the storm of God's wrath. Like we do here, we confess our sins publicly to each other, to God. Verse seven, he proclaims an assurance of pardon. Like we do, after we confess our sins, we go into assurance of pardon. Yet you, God, have brought my life up from the pit, verse 7. Not because I deserve it, because of your sheer mercy and grace. We do that too. And then verse 9, all of that accumulates to a statement of faith, which is what we do as well. He states very boldly, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's prayers sound really, really good. It's all the things we do here Sunday morning. We announce a call to worship. We confess our sins, remind ourselves of an assurance of pardon we have in Christ after we confess our sins. Then we say statements of faith as found in scripture. But yet, what do we do afterwards? What what do we fall back into on Monday, on Tuesday? Yes, some of us experience some growth like Jonah did in chapter three. At least he preached to them. But then more often than not, do we not fall right back into the cycle of the repetitive sins, the same struggles, the same idols that we fall back into, just like Jonah in chapter 4? Do we not? I do. <laughs> and that's what's funny about all this, that Jonah saw the irony of all this. He, he meant to write it in this way. Remember, Jonah didn't write chapter 2 in the belly of the fish. Jonah wrote the whole book after he was back from Nineveh. Right? Whether that's in Israel, and his journey, we don't know exactly where it was written, but it's after the whole thing happened. So ask yourself, why would Jonah include such pretty prayers in chapter 2 if he was going to also include his repetitive rebellion in chapter 4? If I was Jonah, I would avoid doing that because I don't want to seem stupid. right? I don't want to be like, look at all my pretty prayers, but then I fail again. Why did Jonah do that? Why did he intentionally include all his pretty prayers, but then also include his failure in chapter 4? To make a point, Jonah's trying to say to us, God did not save me because how beautiful my vows were. God didn't save me because how pretty my prayers were or how strong my commitments look like they were in chapter 2. God saved me because he's merciful and he's gracious, undeserved at all. God did not... Save me because I somehow convinced him by my prayers and my vows. Because I convinced him that somehow I'm going to change. He knew I was going to fall right back into it. But yet he had mercy still. Someone came up to me and said something I was feeling too every, every Sunday. He said, man, we come Sunday morning, come together, and we say all these beautiful prayers and all these well-worded confessions of sin and assurance of partisans. We sing doctrinally faithful lyrics in our music, and we praise God, and we, we sound really deep, resounding statements of faith in the Westminster Catechism or the Haribo Catechism. But then come Monday, come Tuesday, I feel myself going back to the sins that I've been struggling with. My heart, my reaction to the things that happen in life does not live up to what I claim to believe in Sunday morning. And in my heart, I was like, yes, I know. (laughs) I know, me too. This is the age-long cry of the church that we can't do it on our own. No matter how pretty the songs we sing today, we're going to fall right back into it. We indeed need nothing short but a miraculous work of God to help us. If this is not a picture of the Christian walk, I don't know what is. It's ironic. It's almost comedic. Jonah saying, what makes God's grace so amazing and almost unbelievable isn't the fact that God had mercy on me while being aware of my sins in chapter 1. What makes God's mercy so unbelievable is that He had grace on me still even after knowing what I was going to do in chapter 4. This is what's almost unbelievable about God's grace is that he would save those who would receive him even with full knowledge of all their future sins. See, I think I've said this before, but the last bit of pride that usually goes away from the Christian's walk is being surprised when they fall into their own sin. I'm not saying you don't need to be broken. Being broken over your sin is good being remorseful about our sins and passionate about repentance and wanting to live a godly and holy life. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. We should strive for that. We should do that. But to be surprised of your sin is as if you're saying you're above it. It's as if you fall into sin and you go, oh no, how could I have done that? Me? I did that? I didn't know I was capable of that. Of course you are. (laughs) you're sinners i'm a sinner why are you surprised of it do you not know how depraved you are i i am embracing that more and more to not be surprised of it and of course that train of thought usually goes to oh no does god regret saving me now does he still love me As if God was somehow uninformed about the things that you would do in the future, and he's caught off guard, and now he's saying, "Ah, man, if I knew he was going to do that, I wouldn't have died for him in the first place. That's not your God. (laughs) Do not be mistaken. God is not intimidated by your past sins, nor will he be surprised of our future sins. He knows the depth of our sin more than we will ever know and died for us still and offer this forgiveness to us still. And if we believe that this is true, it will do wonders to our hearts. The truth that God did not, listen, the truth that God did not climb on that cross for the person you should be. The truth that God did not climb on that cross for the person you can be. The truth that God climbed on that cross for you. Full stop. Yes, he wants you to change. Yes, he wants us to change and grow and repent and mature in Christ and start loving the things he loves and hates the things he hates and grow in obedience and in holiness. But he did not die for the idolized version of you. He died for you. He is not intimidated by our past sins and he will not be surprised of our future sins. He knows you fully. All the things you've done, all the things you will do, and offers you mercy still, offers you himself still. Which brings us to our last point. Our unbelievably great salvation. Our sin, like Jonah's, deserve nothing less than the wrath of God. We've seen that. We too deserve to be swallowed up by shoal, verse, I think, 2 says. We too deserve the billows and the waves of God's wrath to sink us. The consequences of ignoring and disobeying the sovereign creator is not light and then after we're saved yes we repent and yes we grow and yes we walk in christlikeness but it's shallow and short-lived at best oftentimes sometimes it's not sometimes we find victorious victories over our sin in christ but for me at least 90 percent of the time it's it's very slow and it's almost often shallow so Before we move on and finish our third point, I want to bring us back to our main question. How should God deal with sinful, evil people in the world? Or in other words, how should God deal with you? How should God deal with me? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus answers that question in the New Testament. What's more fascinating is that he answers that question using the very chapter we're studying today, Jonah chapter 2. Okay, let me read two passages, one of them we've read earlier. But, but what do you think Jesus meant when he said what he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 29, 30, and 32? This generation is an evil generation. What should God do with evil people? This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In Matthew 12, that we read earlier, verse 38 to 40, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the blood of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let's, Let's pause here and really think about this. Why do you think Jesus used Jonah's deliverance through the fish as something that points to him and the cross? Well, think about it. What was the cross, if not like the fish, an almost unbelievable act of mercy by God that delivers hopeless sinners? It's almost unbelievable. It almost seems like something that belongs in a Disney movie, doesn't it? God coming down as man to die for me? It's almost unbelievable. It's miraculous. The sovereign God of the universe would come down on a cross to save sinners like us. But secondly, think about it not only are they both un- almost unbelievable they're both also ironic remember the swallowing and the vomiting imagery of the old testament that that usually is an imagery of judgment yet in Jonah's case with the fish this method of judgment became the means of his salvation what was the cross is it not a method used by the romans for judgment was it not a method of punishment But yet in our case, for those who have received him, this method of judgment became the very means of our deliverance. Almost unbelievable and very ironic. Where Jesus was judged for our sins and those who received this mercy is delivered from their sins and God's wrath and the consequences thereof, for it all has been thrown up, vomited upon Christ. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What should this do then? You know what this does? A few things. One, it should create an urgency to receive him. An urgency to receive him. Like Jonah without the fish, who absolutely had no hope in the bottom of the sea, without Christ we have no hope for salvation. We are as hopeless as Jonah was at an ocean floor, Without God acting miraculously we have no hope. We can we can't just try and be better and better. Our sin has merited upon us the full wrath of a sovereign God. And we can't we can't work ourselves out of this one. There needs to be an appointed miraculous, almost unbelievable act of God that saves us. An urgency to receive him too. He should convict us and lure us to obedience. Convict us and lure us to obedience. First, convict that we are called to obey Him. This means begin the difficult process of forgiving those and loving those whom you count as your Nineveh. What should God do with them? Have pity on them, love them. Do that. Even if you don't want to, it's not up to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If the Lord deems it best to have mercy on them, He will. What we are called to do is not to play God and decide what's best for them, what they deserve. We are called to obey God and forgive and let God decide the rest of the story. It should convict us to obey Him and forgive our Ninevites. But two, it should also lure us to forgive our Ninevites. Because we realize we too are enemies of God. We are no better than our Ninevites. We are just as hopeless and we are also objects of His pity and His grace and His mercy. Three, it should calm our hearts with an assurance of salvation. Let me repeat it again first. It should create an urgency to receive him. Two, it should convict and lure us to obedience. Three, it should calm our hearts with an assurance of salvation. He is not intimidated by our past sins. He is not uninformed of our future sins. Jonah Jonah rebelled in chapter 1, saved in chapter 2, yet fall right back into it in chapter 4. If we truly have received Christ, then don't think that he isn't aware of how many sins you have and will commit. But he died for you still. Not who you should be, not who you can, but who you are. Okay? And all this should then finally end with giving us the power to worship. Create an urgency to receive him. Convict and lure us to obedience. It should calm our hearts with an assurance of salvation that he knows us fully and loves us fully. Lastly, it should give us the power to worship. Just as Jonah, after being delivered from the absolute helplessness that he was in, he burst into worship because he realized he didn't deserve it. And so should we react in that way. We don't deserve this mercy of God. And this time, God didn't just appoint a great fish to swallow us and vomit us out. He appointed his son to die on a cross for our sins. Lead into worship because of this. This is what the cross does. Receive him. There's no other way. Obey and begin the hard work of forgiving others because you yourselves are sinners saved by grace. Rest in that your salvation is not based on something as fickle as your own strength. It's based on the mercy of God. And finally, worship. Worship. Pray to him. Confess your sins. Proclaim of how great of a salvation He's given us. Declare truths about Him and utter to Him praises and poetry in song. Because some words and some truths are just too beautiful to be spoken in mere prose. I pray that we end up doing all the above. But at this moment we can at least do one of them. We're still in worship, aren't we? As we continue in our time of worship, as we Utter the very pretty and beautiful words we will sing in our last song. As we praise him and declare the truth about his great salvation, let us, like Jonah in the belly of the fish, who though has not yet been delivered to dry land, still worships God boldly in the belly of the fish with an assurance that one day he will reach shore. That one day he will see his salvation. Through this unbelievable and ironic mercy through his cross, we will one day arrive safely at shore. But for now, let us do the above and worship him, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. What an amazing truth this is, Father, that you, through your almost unbelievable act of mercy, through your ironic, ironic act of mercy, where a method of judgment became the very means of our deliverance. How crazy is this that you would love and save sinners like us? Lord, let us now run back to you as we are. You did not die for the person we can or should be. You died for us with all the brokenness, with all the sin, with all the impurities we know and the weaknesses we know we have. And let this give us an assurance of salvation and forgive others for we are just as sinful as they and we have been partakers of of mercy and grace just like they need. And Father, let all this accumulate into worship, that we may come to you and sing praises to you and not be ashamed by confessing our sin because salvation doesn't belong to our strength. Salvation belongs to you. And that on the cross you have given us the sign and the power and the salvation that we could not receive on our own. We could not earn on our own. We thank you for this almost unbelievable, and for this unbelievably ironic salvation. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.